We're going to talk about a passage of Scripture today that is very commonly skipped over, and you're going to see why. Um, but first, I want you to do me a favor. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. While you're turning there, 2 Timothy 3.16. While you're turning there, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that your word gives us light. It gives us truth. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask that, Lord, you would use your word today to do that for us. You would further equip us for um, life here on earth as your servants, Lord, that we would be able to live in a manner that's pleasing to you, Lord, that's glorifying to you. We would be able to live in a manner that reflects you, that the world might see Christ through us and that you might draw uh, to salvation um, people through that. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Second Timothy 3.6. I don't know why I'm turning here. It's like one of the first scriptures I ever memorized. Second Timothy 3.16, which says what? All scripture. Note, all scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or if you're reading in the King James, thoroughly furnished, right? You're thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I, here's why I'm bringing that up. There are parts of the scriptures that we want to say, uh, let's just skip over that. Like, why is it even there? Who cares? The genealogies, for example, right? Genesis 5. Genesis 10, which is called the Table of Nations. Why, why should we study that one? Just a bunch of genealogies, just a bunch of old dead people's names. But Second Timothy says all scripture is profitable for, uh, for doctrine. I've heard it said before, sometimes we'll say it this way. We'll say, well, you know, Acts, I mean, that's not where you get doctrine from. Sure you do. Acts is good for doctrine, too, as long as you get the right stuff out of it. It's how you slice the word. Does that make sense? Yeah, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for teaching. There's something we can draw out of all of it. And Genesis chapter 10 is no different. That's where we're at today. Uh, last time we went over Genesis chapter 9. We talked about uh, respect for our elders. We talked about respect for authority. We talked about what that looks like in a Christian's life and how different we should look than the world. And right now we're going to be respecting the authority of the train whistle. He has a louder voice than I. Much more shrill, too. Uh, we love the train when it goes past. Not really, but it's sanctifying us, if nothing else. Yeah, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? Paul was telling Timothy that, of course, because he was telling Timothy, hey, you need to be in the Scriptures. You need to be uh, knowledgeable about these so that you can utilize these to reproof and correct and to grow up others, right? So, having said that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is the one that everybody skips, well, 5 and 10, the one that everybody skips. And that's because it's basically a genealogy. But there are some really important points of doctrine in here that you can miss if you skip it. Okay? By the way, I brought something I wanted to show this to you. Um, I want to commend to you, if you like the book of Genesis, if you'd really like a good commentary, I think this is the greatest commentary ever written in the history of the church on Genesis. It's called the Genesis Record. It's by Henry Morris. The number one most uh, common, in other words, it's the number one most owned commentary in the history of the church is John MacArthur's commentary. He's not even dead yet. John MacArthur's commentary on the Bible is the most common, most popular commentary on the Bible in church history ever. By the way, guess what book John MacArthur references? Guess what book R.C. Sproul referenced a lot? I, I really, I mean this, I, I truly believe this is the best commentary on Genesis ever written. There are more academic ones, there, there are ones that talk more about the Greek. I have one, I just got done taking a 
another class. This, this summer I took a seminary class over the book of Genesis. And uh, the, book, the textbook that we used in that was, I don't know, 1,500 pages and had a lot of Hebrew in it. Um, and I don't think it was nearly as good as this one. And the reason is this. This man was not just a good theologian. He was also a very good scientist. This is the guy who basically stood up in an entire generation when an entire generation was saying, the Bible is no longer trustworthy, only a fool would trust it. He stood up and said, no, that's not true. And I'll give you the theological evidence and I'll give you the scientific evidence to back up what I'm saying. Did a great job. He's basically the father of the modern creation movement. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, those two guys, were basically the fathers of the modern creation movement. This was one of the signers of the ICBI, and in case you don't know what that is, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a series of conferences called the International um, Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. This was one of the guys. This guy, R.C. Sproul, was there. John MacArthur was there. Basically, it was a who's who of everybody in Christendom from across the world. Francis Schaeffer flew in. I mean, there were people there from Africa, from, from Sweden, from uh, Australia. But there were Christians there from all over the world basically signing a document that says, we believe the scriptures are true, they are accurate, and they can be trusted. They're infallible and they're inerrant. And this guy was one of the guys that headed that up. So I'm showing this to you because uh, if you really want to get serious about your study of Genesis, I don't think there's anything better out there. There you go. Um, actually, I think John MacArthur would say the same thing, believe it or not. So, all right. This is the table of nations. Uh, let me introduce a term, Toledot. What in the world is that? Toledot. Well, Genesis, the book of Genesis, is actually a lot of smaller pieces of history put together. Okay? And those little pieces are called Toledots. Now, Genesis chapter 10 actually goes along with Genesis chapter 11. They're basically one Toledot. Why is that? Well, Genesis chapter 10 tells us where the nations, after the flood, remember, the flood happened 6, 7, 8, right? And then afterwards 9. And now we're basically into the world after the flood. And what we see here is there's people breaking up, going everywhere. That's chapter 10. Well, that brings up, that raises a question. Notice it does not beg the question. Listen, people, if something raises the question, it doesn't beg the question. Just let you know. Sound educated. It raises an important question. We see all of these people moving off in all different directions. And, of course, the, the, the first question a thinking person might ask is why? why? Why would you move out? Why wouldn't you just kind of establish camp and go from there? Right? Why in the world did people move everywhere? Chapter 11 tells us that, which is what? Take a guess. What's in chapter 11? Tower of Babel. That's right. Tower of Babel. Hey, man, you can't understand everybody. If you can't understand people, it doesn't do you any good to, to be their, you know, their neighbor in the tent, right? You can't understand them. And so people divided up. They broke up according to their language. In fact, um, Shem basically named one of his sons because of it. It was such, such a memorable and outstanding event in his mind. When I say outstanding, I don't mean a good thing. I mean it was, it was a big deal. It was such a big deal that he named his son after it, named one of his sons Peleg. Peleg means divided. And it says, in those days the earth was divided. It's not talking about the continents dividing. It's talking about, in those days, people divided up. Why? Because they didn't all speak the same language, and so they had to move to groups where everybody could understand each other, right? I mean, think about if we had that today. I mean, if today we had a Tower of Babel incident here, and all of a sudden, half of you spoke Spanish, and a third of you spoke French, and you couldn't understand English anymore. Where would you? It wouldn't do you any good to come here and listen to me preach, right? I can only say a few things in Spanish, and most of them are food terms. You know, burrito, taco, quesadilla, right? It's not going to do you any good. So what's going to happen? Well, you're going to break up to a people that you can understand, and that's basically what happened. Genesis chapter 10 tells us about that. Now listen, I want to introduce you to a guy. And the reason I want to introduce you to this guy is because I want you to hear what he has to say about Genesis chapter 10. This guy's name is William F. Albright. Anybody ever heard of this guy? Probably not. Died in the 70s. He was, in, very, in, in many ways, he was really the modern father of biblical archaeology. He pioneered entire fields of biblical archaeology. 
He was one of the men. He was, he was the leading expert on biblical archaeology when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. He got his Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins University, and John, Johns Hopkins noticed how smart he was when he was a student there. And the day he graduated, they brought him in and said, hey, would you be willing to be a professor here? And he was a professor there until he retired, 30 years, something like that. Very, very extremely intelligent guy. Spoke Semitic languages, lots of languages. He was an incredible archaeologist. So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the first question was, wait, time out. This little kid, this teenage boy, says he found these scrolls in the caves in the desert. Now, is that true or is he just making this up? You ever... You ever been around a teenager that might make up a story? I'm sure you've never done that. I'm sure you've, you've never done that yourself, and you've probably never heard of that. But it was the same thing in the 40s and the 50s, right? Well, who do you turn to? Who in the world could tell you whether this is the real deal or whether this is a fake? This was one of the guys. In fact, this is the lead guy. Mr. Albright, we need your help. We need you to tell us if this is the real deal or if this is just a cheap fake. And he said, I'll do it. And he provided the evidence said, guess what? This is the real deal. These scrolls are the real thing. So it became very well known in his time because of that. He was the top scholar in the world in his day. Um, he was a prolific author. I put just some of his books. I couldn't fit all of his books on there. He wrote a lot of books about um, Near Eastern archaeology, uh, about the Old Testament, Old Testament customs and, and whatnot. Um, had all kinds of awards. He was the first non-Jew to be uh, Awarded the, I can't pronounce that. It's basically an award from Jerusalem saying you're a worthy citizen. It's, it's, it's kind of like Israel's version of the Nobel Prize. In fact, there was an archaeology institute in Jerusalem that was renamed after him because of his efforts. It was incredible. Um, lots of scholars inspired by his work became specialists in areas that he pioneered himself. Uh, he, the Albright Institute, of course, that's in Jerusalem. That's the one I was telling you about of archaeological research named in honor of him. Here's what he says about Genesis chapter 10. Okay? He says, it stands alone, absolutely alone, in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks. The table of nations remains an astonishingly, astonishingly accurate document. Why is that a big deal? Because it tells us where the different nations settled. By the, word, by the way, the word that we translate as nations here, does anybody know what that is? Greek word? If you're a Greek geek, now's the time to bust it out. Ethnos, or ethna, or do you think, what, what else do we get from that? What, what word? Ethnicity, yeah, ethnic, ethnicity. People groups were called ethnicities. Have you ever heard that term? I bet you have. So this is actually a history of where we get those ethnicities. Where do the different ethnicities of people come from? Why is that even important in our day and age? Who cares? You should, for one. You should care a lot. Why? Because the secular narrative on this is this. Here's the secular narrative of how man came to be. Once upon a time, millions and millions of years ago, there was a group of about 10,000 Proto-humans, that means they're somewhere between ape and human, and they were just evolving. And they broke up, because of the geography, they broke up into different groups, and they started evolving from there. And some of them evolved better than others. What is that going to lead to? That is racism. How did that figure in? Let me, let me fast forward here and let me just show you a couple of things. Here's the origin of species. I've noticed, I'm a science teacher, it's a blessing and a curse. I've noticed that everybody that uh, publishes Darwin's work now, they always, they put on the title, but they always leave off the subtitle. Now the subtitle of every academic work goes on the front cover. It's always there, except for this one. I wonder why that is. Well, here's the actual, here's the actual full title of his book in 1859. That's when it came out. Did we have a big war right after that? Yeah. Yeah, we did. What was it over? Well, you, you can say it was over this, then. Oh, it was over states' rights. Okay, the central issue, and everyone knows, was what? It was slavery. Slavery. Why? 
Why was that such a big issue? There were people working to abolish slavery since before the inception of America. How in the world did it get such a strong foothold that people were willing to go to war and kill each other over it? Well, part of the reason was because in 1859, a, quote, leading scholar wrote a book. And in that book, he said basically this, some races have evolved farther than others. And some races are better than others. And, of course, him being Indo-European, which was the master race. Indo-European. Strange, isn't it? Strange how people who are very racist always believe their race is the top. Weird, huh? Yeah. The Origin of Species, Charles Darwin. The full title was Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin believed that. He published a book about it in 1859. It became an instant hit. It was a bestseller. It was so good, in fact, that he published another book in 1871 called The Descent of Man, where he basically took the ideas that he had put forth in The Origin of Species and he developed them even further. In The Descent of Man, he says, it's not going to be very long, span of time, when the civilized races of men will replace and exterminate the savage races of men. Nobody disagreed. I mean, you know, there was people that disagreed, don't get me wrong. There were people in the church that disagreed. There were people in Christendom who took that and ran with it. There were entire denominations who stopped sending missionaries to Native Americans because they said they're so savage, they're not actually evolved enough to understand the gospel. I'm not kidding. In the early 1900s, we captured a small black man who was actually a pygmy, from a pygmy tribe in Africa, and we said, look at this. This guy is the missing link. Anybody know his name? Ever heard of him? Odabinga. Do you know what we did with him? When I say we, I mean the Americans that were in charge of this. They put him in the zoo. He's not really fully human. He's, he's missing link. He belongs in the zoo. That was in the 1900s. It was before the World's Fair, my friend. World's Fair in the early 1900s. I think it was 1901 or 06 now. can't remember which one. Um, that wasn't just Otabinga. There was groups of... Uh, Native Americans that were there on display, these are the savages. Someday they'll evolve far enough that they can be, you know, white. Because the going theory was the farther you evolve, the lighter your skin got. That is nothing but racism covered with academic garb. I have an uh, encyclopedia page from the 30s where it lists out the races and it says how highly evolved each is. When we look back on Hitler's Germany, we think, that's unbelievable. I wonder how he could do that. <laughs> look, folks, American academics were part of that. I wonder how it infected America. By the way, it got big in America, too. There was a eugenics movement. Uh, the state of Indiana, I think it was. Indiana? Yeah, it was Indiana. Sterilized over a 1,000 people. The person has downs. Let's sterilize them. Get, let's get rid of these bad genes. Got to have good genes. That's what eugenics means. E-U is good in Greek. Eugenics, good genes. Hey, marry people with good genes, and if they don't have good genes, get rid of them. And we heard that rhetoric coming from Hitler and went, man, he's smart. He's helping along the process of evolution. He's a smart guy. Today, the academic community is very embarrassed by that, and so they do their very best to cover over that, and I will not let them. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. When you decide to turn your back on the light of the gospel, there is no light left. When you decide to turn your back on the word of God, you will embrace wickedness because you have no other choice. The word of God said in Acts 17, God hath made all races of men from one blood. What does Genesis chapter 10 show us? God has made all races of men from one blood. It is the antidote to racism. When we have a culture that turns its back on the gospel and the word of God, they will embrace racism in some form or fashion. They will. Because that's where it comes from.
Yeah. A higher race subjects to itself a lower race. And it's a right which we see in nature and which can be regarded as the sole conceivable right. It is the sole conceivable right for a more evolved race to subject a less evolved race. Who said that? Adolf Hitler. Where did he get that idea? He got it from Darwin. I notice everybody in our, you know, modern academia, we want to put that down. I want to make sure nobody remembers that. If you read Charles Darwin's first two books, okay, if you read Origin of Species and you read Descent of Man, and you follow that consistently, you will get Hitler's Germany. You will get the Third Reich. Hitler was not thought of as crazy at that. We think back on that and go like, that dude was nuts. He's crazy out of his mind. He's insane. He wasn't thought that way at then. He was Times Man of the Year two years before World War II started. Times Man of the on the cover of the magazine. This guy is awesome. Look what he's doing over in Germany. It's incredible what he's doing. What a great guy. Man of the Year. And our academics, the real smart guys, you know, those guys that know better than the Bible being inspired, you know, we know better. They were his pals. We were doing all we could to be like them. We imported the eugenics movement. That's why we didn't get into the war. When we started the war, did we get into it? Heaven's sakes, no. Why? Germany's our pal. Hitler was our pal. Why? Because we had started to turn our back on the gospel. And when you do, you will embrace wickedness. Okay, sorry. I'm, I didn't mean to be preachy. I told my wife this morning, I'm not even going to preach. I'm just going to teach, okay? All right, so here's the table of nations. Here's what it says. I'm going to read through this, and then I'm going to go over some of this stuff with you. It is incredible how accurate this is. It's incredible. You would think someone has sat down in the 1900s and written this out. You can still see the names in some of the people groups in those areas. It's incredible. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, Rodanum, for example. What is this area right here called in Greece today? Rhodes. Rhodes. Settlers went from there into uh, Africa, made a new place called Rhodesia. Today it's called Zimbabwe. Yeah, weird. Like Rodanum and Rhodesia or Rhodes. It's weird, huh? Wonder where they got that name from. No wondering. All right, here's what it says. Chapter 10. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. By the way, uh, any expecting mothers in there? I mean, hey, if you're looking for us, a name for your kids, right? There they are. Look at those great sons' names. Tubal, get over here! Meshech, where's Abednego? Gomer, hey, who wouldn't love to have that name? That's cruel and unusual punishment. What a gomer. No, really, that's his name. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Tarshish. Hmm, that's weird. Ever heard of a place called Tarshish? Bet you have. I bet there was a really pretty well-known disciple from a place like that, huh? Like Saul of Tarshish. Weird, huh? Okay. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz? Ripheth and Togarma, Ashkenaz. You ever heard of that? History guy, Ashkenaz? It's the Jewish word for Germany. Jews that lived in Germany are called what today? If you are Jewish and you are descended from Jews that lived in Germany, you are called an Ashkenazi Jew. Where does that come from? Right there. Ashkenaz. Uh, the Ashkenazi, uh, anybody ever seen, uh, is it Schindler's List? Those were Ashkenazi Jews. That's why it says at the very end of the movie, Ashkenazi Jews still celebrate him to this day. That was who he was saving. The Ashkenazi Jews, yeah. Ashkenaz, Ashkenazi means it was the Jewish word for Germany. wonder where they settled. Weird, huh? Uh, let's see. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. 
From these, the coastline, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language. Notice they're being separated by language. Why? What's coming up? Tower of Babel. They were separated out by their language. The languages is what formed the ethnicities. All right? The languages. And I'll show you how that works here in just a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about DNA. I promise I won't get too deep. It's going to be okay. So if you're not a science person, it's okay. Hold on. It should not be intimidating. They were separated into their languages, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations, or ethnos, their ethnicities. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. I wonder where Canaan settled. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, uh, Sabta, Ramah, Sabteka. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, who began to be a mighty one on the earth. We're going to talk about that. That's He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. That does not mean in English what you think it means. It sounds like we're talking about a guy who's really good with a bow and arrow and he takes lots of deer, right? That is not what that's talking about. He was a, The same word means tyrant. He began to be a tyrant upon the earth. His name means literally, if you want to know Nimrod's name, literally his name means let us rebel. Cush, his daddy, was a son of Ham and was not too fond of God's commands. And he finally has his, I, I think, this is Paulology here, okay? Can't prove this. I think he must have really resented what happened with Ham back in the tents with Noah. He says, us be servants, not us. Which is crazy because it was Canaan that was cursed for that, not all the rest of Ham. <clears throat> not us. We're going to rule. We'll rule Shem, and we'll rule Japheth, and we'll rule the earth. And I'm going to teach my son how to be a tyrant, how to be a king, how to get his way through sheer force of will. And he did. There's an implication here that he was a mighty hunter. Now listen, would there have been some big animals on the earth in those days? Hey, you think there were many bears here in Ada, Oklahoma, before people settled it? Yeah, I guarantee you. I mean, we just found one in Bing a couple years ago. They're still here in, you know, various places. Why do you think they're not here so much anymore, though? If you moved in, let me just ask you something. I can tell you my answer. If you move into a place and you decide to settle and uh, your family's grown up there and you find out there's a very large, dangerous creature living in the woods behind your house, what would you do? Yeah. Let's just pretend for a second that young men have been like young men are even in ages past. You think you could really gather yourself a name? Back in the day when there's not really any sports to play, but you killed a lot of big, dangerous animals? Would you become the, the, the hero of the day? Absolutely. I think Nimrod knew that. I think Cush taught him that. He was the mighty hunter. What was he? He was the guy killing the things that were killing other people. Hey, if you had a guy coming around that was killing all the lions, or, I don't know, worse, the Tyrannosaurus, if you had a guy coming around killing all these big, dangerous animals way long before there were guns, and he wasn't doing this with bullets. I mean, trust me, if something like that was in my yard, I'd introduce him to my 12-gauge, and then I'd take pictures and put them on Facebook like, that's right, baby, that's right. I just did that, right? So what hunters do today, right? Kill a big lion, what do they do? Go over, stand next to it, open his mouth, take a picture, take a picture. People are going to think I'm tough, Right? That's what Nimrod was doing, but he was using that to his advantage. He was using that to his advantage. Why? You think you could intimidate somebody with that? You do what I tell you to do, or you're going to be like the lion. You listen to me, or you're going to be like the lion. Would that be intimidating? Yeah, probably so. Would it be intimidating to you if, you know, some guy that was 6'6 and 350 and was a... UFC, five, you know, Brock Lesnar shows up and says, you better do what I say. What did you do? Yes, sir. Okay, where do you want to go? You need my wallet? How much? Right? Why, it's intimidating. Man, he might destroy me like he destroyed that guy. He might destroy me like he destroyed that lion. Urgh. 
Okay, what do you need? Do you guys know what a targum is? Before I go on. A targum is like, it's kind of like the Jewish form of, uh, an early form of a commentary. They were written around certain books, right? And so if you're reading through this chapter and you're not really sure, it was literally the Jewish you know, equivalent of a commentary. The Jerusalem Targum, and different, by the way, different schools of thought, different rabbis had different Targums. The Jerusalem Targum said some things about um, Nimrod that I think are very interesting. And so I'm going to pull it up for you real quick here. I actually put it into my notes. If I can find it. Here's what it says. Nimrod became a mighty tyrant in the face of Jehovah. Now that's what it's, it reads here. That actually means basically, you know, he was trying to withstand God face to face. I won't listen to what you say and I won't follow your law. Here's what the Jerusalem Targum says. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter not just of animals, but of the sons of men. And he said to them, quote, Depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere only to the judgment of me, Nimrod. Therefore it said as Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. Nimrod was a wicked man. Is Nimrod talked about in other places in the scriptures? Yeah, he is. Because his system, his, his system of culture, his system of life became what great ancient city. Actually, there's more than one. By the way, they weren't founded by him. He took them over. He conquered them. Babylon. Babylon the Great, the rise of the whore of Babylon in Revelation. That is this system. That's Nimrod's system. So we're, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. All right, moving on. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Babylon. From there, Eric, Akkad, man, that's one you should circle, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the plain of the Sumerians. You heard of the Sumerians? Sure, they're in the Old Testament. What about Akkad, the Akkadians? Sargon the Great, absolutely. We think Sargon the Great may actually be a depiction of Nimrod. The pictures, the relief. I'm so glad somebody knows. She makes my heart happy. Got another history nut. I know there's like three of us in here, but hey, we've got to stick together. But, <clears throat> yeah. Akkad, the Akkadians. That was the first universal language. Lingua Franca. Anybody know what a universal language is? Man, it's like you're at school today. You look like it too. Oh, this is really interesting, Wilson. This is great. This is almost as good as watching paint dry. Almost. What's a lingua franca? What's a universal language? Well, a universal language is one that is, is spread so far and wide because the culture is so influential that people, even in other cultures and other um, people groups and ethnos, start learning this language basically so they can trade or they can do business with that. Acadia was the first universal language. There's only been four in the history of the world. Acadia was the first one. Jesus spoke at least two that we know of. It's kind of weird. That was a very strange time in world history. Very important time in world history. Lots of changes going on. Strange. Wonder why he'd come on the scene when he did. It was as if he was waiting for the fullness of time. Crazy, huh? Read that in a real good book somewhere. Aramaic was the second. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Koine Greek was the third. Jesus spoke Koine Greek. The fourth is going on today. Anybody got a guess? Universal language. What language is so far spread that people in all kinds of cultures speak it so they can do trade and business? We're speaking it right now. English, yeah. 40% of the world's GDP is produced by English-speaking countries. In case you're keeping track, that's a lot. All right? So people in all kinds of other places learn English so they can do business. You're very blessed because most of you only know English. There's my, my wife tells this joke all the time overseas. If you know three languages, you're trilingual. If you know two languages, you're bilingual. If you know one language, you're American. 
I hate to say it's true more often than it's not, but it's true more often than it's not. Um, what, you, you can kind of get away with that because so many people speak English. I mean, I went to Africa. I went to five nations in Africa, and I only spoke English, and I could still talk with people in those five nations. Why? English was not their first language. I mean, they had, you know, accents, and there were certain phrases that kind of hard for them, but they knew English. Why in the world would they know English? Because they learned their regular language growing up, and they knew if I want to get a good job, if I want to have real opportunities for growth and advancement, I've got to learn English. And so they did. So I was in Zimbabwe speaking to people that their first language was Shona, but they knew English. I went into Zambia. People there still knew English. Mozambique, people there spoke Portuguese and, a lot of times, English. Got an AK-47 put in my face and was told I was an American spy. So I left Mozambique quickly. And, of course, my retort was, yeah, if America was going to send people to spy on a nation where the average person is five foot two and black, they would obviously send a six foot six inch white guy. Makes perfect sense. Obviously, I'm a spy. I'm, I'm doing a great job, aren't I? Really infiltrate. I'm a mole. But I got out of there. Yeah, so English is the fourth, the lingua franca, or the universal language. This was very, very important. That, that means that group, Nimrod, the, the group of, of cultures, basically, that come out of Nimrod became very powerful. Did the Babylonians ever become powerful? Believe it, brother. How about the Assyrians? Yeah. By the way, the Assyrians were not founded by Nimrod. They were founded by Asher. Assyrians. Assyrians. Hmm, Assyrians. Weird, right? They were founded by Asher. But Nimrod went in and took them over. He made an entire complex of cities. By the way, that's why Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, that great city. That great, the phrase, that great city, does not mean Nineveh is really big. That's what we take it to mean, because if we call a city a great city, it's like New York. Man, it's a big city. No, actually, Nineveh was kind of the central hub of a lot of different little cities around there. Uh, because Nimrod had basically made this complex of cities. That's what that meant. Go to Nineveh. The great city, which is almost like saying, go to Nineveh, that big metropolis area. Why? Because if you preach in Nineveh, it's also going to go to these little towns around. Kind of like Ada and Lada. you got all these little towns around Ada, right? Bing. You with me here? It's kind of the same way. Okay. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. He invaded Assyria and built Nineveh. Reboath, Ir, Calais, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calais. That is the principal city. By the way, we've um, excavated some of those cities even today. Mizraim begat Ludim, Anam, Laabim, Nephudim, Pathrusim, and Kalusim, from who came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. You've heard of the Philistines. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Semarite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Now listen, here's what's crazy about this. Those, the people of Canaan, these became the principal enemies of who? You can say it. God's, God's people, Israel, right? His nation. Israel has to come into Canaan and basically put them to the sword because they're so wicked and so, um, so pagan, basically, that they are irredeemable. That is just bad. Your society is pretty bad when God says, uh, it's not redeemable. You're going to have to kill them. You say, what? That's pretty bad. What's crazy to see is a few chapters later, the Hethites were actually good friends with Abraham. They started out good. The Hethites, is who, that's who he bought the field to bury his beloved wife Sarah in. Sarah dies, and he says, hey, guys, I need a place to bury her. And a man among the Hethites, who was noble, very noble man, stands up and says, look, you're a prince among us. Choose the choicest land. We'll just give it to you. It's kind of the Old Testament way of saying, we love you. We know that you're going through a tough time. We want to help you. So for a while, they were actually the friends of Abraham. And yet we see a few hundred years later, they have devolved. That society has devolved so much that they're put to the sword. Bad. Okay. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. 
By the way, we have actually um, been able to excavate Sodom now. That's incredible. That's, that's, by the way, it's been the last 10 years we've just found that. And we actually have an idea, we think we know, what it was that killed them. It's crazy. Sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 19, right? Genesis 19 says, God rained down fire and brimstone from the heavens and it overthrew the entire city. We found a massive crater in the middle of what was at the time the big city of Sodom. Big crater and lots of sulfuric rock. What was sulfuric rock called? Brimstone. Weird, huh? Brimstone. We think it was actually basically a, a meteor strike. Big enough to wipe out the entire city. By the way, it was super hot. There's like parts of ceramics that are fused to other things because it got so hot. That's it's pretty warm. It's as if there was fire and brimstone rained down from heaven. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what archaeology is discovering. Oh, yeah, Genesis 19. Yeah, it's right again. That's crazy, huh? Crazy how weird. It's weird how often this thing gets it right. It's as if that book was inspired or something. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. The children were born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. You've seen that word before. Who came through the line of Eber? I don't know. I didn't even know Eber existed until like 20 seconds ago, Wilson. Uh, well, the Hebrews. That's where that comes from. They were the children of Eber. They were called the Hebrews for that reason. Okay, back to this. The brother of Japheth the elder. Japheth was the elder son. The son of Shem were Elam, Asher. I wonder what he founded. Asher, Assyria. Yeah, Assyria. Our fact said, why should I know our fact said? Uh, he's the lineage of Jesus. You know, no big deal, no problem. At least we know what our, you know, strengths and weaknesses are. Our fact says, begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. There's the Hebrews. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Peleg literally means divided or division. So basically, this is about the time the Tower of Babel happened. And Shem goes, man, that was a momentous event. We're going to name our new boy after that event. Now his name is Peleg because everybody's breaking up according to language. Joktan begot Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmaf. Hazar Maveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzol, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah. You've heard those. Uh, they're in the Old Testament. The gold in that land is good, right? Genesis says about that. They both settled in, um, well, what today is the uh, Arabian Peninsula. That's where they settled. There's gold there. Guess what? There's really good gold there. Weird. It's kind of like. Genesis says, yeah, anyway. Uh, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. See, look at all those great names you could pick. Ladies, look at that. Ah, get off those websites, babyname.com. You don't need that. just need Genesis chapter 10. <laughs> and if you do name your child after Genesis chapter 10, man, come up with a nickname. Don't be so cruel. Come on. Yeah. Your real name's Hadaram, but we're just going to call you Tom. Okay, that'll work. And for their dwelling place, from Mesha, as you go towards Sephar, the mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations. I want to give you a couple examples, and then we're going to be done. A couple examples, because I think they're incredibly interesting that, um, that they are recorded. And we still have them today. Quit yawning. You're a bunch of you yawning. Come on. Come on. It's not that bad. Is it that bad? All right, well, whatever. Fine. There's nothing I can do about it. Japheth. I want you to realize this about Japheth. Japheth and his son, Javan. Let's, let's, okay, so here's really close up so you can kind of see Canaan. Let's back up a little bit. We can see a little bit more. Japheth, basically, as these guys were coming off the, coming off the, uh, they're spreading. I shouldn't say coming off the ark, coming out of the Tower of Babel. As they spread, basically, they did this. Shem, the most of the descendants of Shem, 
came down into the Arabian Peninsula, kind of stayed in the Middle East. In fact, that's where we get the word Semite, Shemites. If you don't like Jews, you're an anti-Semitic, anti-Shemitic. That's where we get that word. Okay, the Semites are the descendants of Shem, and they're in the Middle East, basically. The Arabian Peninsula, this is the Arabian Peninsula here, right? Japheth, basically the descendants of Japheth spread kind of north and east, and they basically flanked this sea, and they came to this area right here. Anybody know what this is? This is Italy. Here's Sicily, right? Always getting the boot. That's what they say over there. What's this island? Anybody know? Crete. Very good. Sam, I love you. Yes, that's Crete. So what is this area? Basically, this is ancient what? Greece. This is Greece, baby. Greece is the word, is the word. That was, I guess, the Javon and Japheth it was. They were the founders of Grecian society. In fact, Japheth's name in the Greek form is counted as the Grecian founder by the Greeks. The Greeks say, I think it's Ionia. There's no J in Greek, right? Well, there's no J in any ancient language. The letter J is only about 500 years old or so because I'm an etymological English nerd, too. I, I know. I there's, that will never help you in, in your life, probably, ever. But you can win you know, Final Jeopardy with that. It was not a J, so what did they use? What did Latin use? Right? What's, the, uh, what's the phrase that uh, Martin Luther coined to say you're both sinner and saint? Simil Eustace. Why Eustace? Yeah, in its Anglicanized form, we say simil justice, right? But in their form, it's simil eustus, right? The same thing for Grecian society. Um, the name of Japheth himself in Greece is Yepetos or Yepethos. Uh, that is the founder of Greek society. The Greeks, you ask the traditional Greeks, who founded Grecian society? They'll tell you that. That's Japheth. By the way, the Greek language is the oldest extant language on earth. It's at least 35 centuries old, 3,500 years old. It is very, very likely that when the Tower of Babel happened, uh, Japheth and Javon and a couple of the others actually were speaking Greek. And they landed in that area. And the names of the people from the Bible still live on in these areas today. Tyrus, heard of Tyre and Sidon, I'm sure. Rodanum, Rhodes. Yeah, they still are there today. Gomer, by the way, is identified by Herodotus and Plutarch, two Greek writers. Hey, this guy was basically the founder of this area of Greece. They are giving names they didn't even realize were biblical names. Uh, the district of Samaria, which is north of the Black Sea. Crimea, guess what it's called today? Crimea. Weird, huh? Three of Gomer's sons are identified as Ashkenaz. Remember Ashkenazi? The Germans. The third son of Gomer, Togerma, is the ancestor of the ancient people known as the Armenians. The Armenian traditions claim that. Magog was listed. By the way, Magog means the, the place of Gog. And the word that meant people of Gog was like Gogians. Guess what that place is called today? Gogians. It was just taken over by Russia a few years ago again. Georgia. We call them the Georgians because, you know, we make our G's, J's sometimes. Why not? We like J. Hey, we invented it. We're going to use it. That's a G. Nope, not anymore. It's a J. My daughter's name is Genesis with a G. That's oh, so weird. It's going to be hard to teach her. What's a G sound make? Guh. Guh. Shouldn't my name be Gunnesis? Well, yeah, well, welcome to English. Yeah, so we see those names all over the place. We still see those place names. The place names that are given to us in chapter 10 of Genesis are still there today. We find them in the, being witnessed to in the writings of the ancient Greeks in the ancient Sumerians, Akkadian writings. We find them in um, 
writings from all over, not just the Middle East, by the way, but Indo-European writings, North African writings, uh, the Carthaginians, for example, people that lived in Carthage. It's North Africa, right? Descendants of Ham. The good thing is this. You can trace your lineage back to at least one of these three guys. Most of us in here are actually going to be a mixture, right? I mean, this is America. Very few people in America are just single, mono-ethnic, right? Now, if you go somewhere like Japan or China or Korea, you can get a very mono-ethnic culture. You'd probably trace it back to one of those guys. Most people here are going to be traceable to, to at least two, maybe all three, right? Um, the Aryans, the Aryans of India. The in, so India, basically the entire culture of India, the Aryan, right? That's Japheth. Trace him back. Am I getting you in trouble with your wife back there? Now you know. It's crazy. She's from India, like she said she was from. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, Tyrus became the ancestor of the Thracians. Uh, by the way, Josephus talked about them. Um, also gave rise to the Etruscans of Italy. There's just, I wish I could go on. There's probably enough stuff in here I could teach for five hours on the different names and where they settled at. Um, Russia, by the way. Russia, Russia did not, was not always called Russia. Anybody know what the word for Russia was for more than 100 years ago now, 150 years ago? No, no, I didn't know until I read it, so just letting you know. And I thought I was a real student of history. Not for that one. So Muskie was from Japheth. It's one of Japheth's line. In fact, today, if you live around the area of... Uh, by the way, that's, that name is still included. That's why it's called Moscow. Moscow. And if you live around the Moscow area, you're called a Muscovite. That was one of the children or grandchildren of Japheth. It's one of the offspring of Japheth. Still today, there's no doubt about it. Where, who, you know, who settled Russia? Japheth and his descendants. They became, in fact, well, one of his descendants was named Rosh. What do we call that place today? It was Russia? Okay. Well, it's pretty close. Give you a couple more. Lud. You can probably see up here somewhere. It's like the only green in a sea of red. That's how you can find him. There you go. Lude, like, hey, bro, how'd you get there? Like, don't you realize the Shemites are all down here? No, apparently, and my guess is, he, you know, like some young man, he decides I'm going to strike out and find a new place. Or maybe, like some young men, it's going to sound crazy, but he might have married somebody that was from up here. It's weird how a woman can change the trajectory of your life. I grew up in western Kansas, let you know. How in the world did I get here? Why did I stay here? Well, real good-looking Indian lady who somehow can put up with me. Trust me, that's, that's something. Yeah, Lude. What is this place known as? Lydia. Father of the Lydians. So, the, those place names still exist today. That is why um, a man like Albert can say, hey, look, there is nothing like this anywhere. The Greeks had the best records in ancient times. Nobody else was even close to the Greeks, to be honest with you. Egyptians were terrible. Sumerians weren't real good. Akkadians were even worse. But um, Greek records were very, very good. They were very accurate for their time. The Greeks did a good job of trying to list out, hey, here's who lived here. This and this was the father of, right, to have genealogies and such. And even among the Greeks, we don't find better records. This is the greatest. Nothing else comes close. Nothing else can match Genesis chapter 10 when it comes to accuracy, when it comes to um, comprehensiveness. It is a class by itself. Um, even higher critics, guys that don't believe the Bible, have admitted that. Albright told us that. It is unparalleled in its antiquity, its comprehensiveness, its accuracy. Why should we know about it? Because it gives us good evidence that we're all descended from one man, namely Noah. And even farther back, Adam. We didn't evolve out of different tribes 10,000 years ago. The ethnicities of people came from one blood. 
By the way, the difference between someone that is super white and someone that is super black is 0.00012% DNA. Unbelievably small. Why is Genesis chapter 10 so important? Because it's the answer to racism. That's why it's important. Why is it important? Because it shows us the line of the Savior. That's why it's important. Why is it important? Because it shows us how unbelievably, incredibly, historically accurate God's word is. If it can be trusted in Genesis chapter 10, it can be trusted in Genesis chapter 1, it can be trusted in John chapter 3. That's why it's important. Why is it important? Because God's word is true, period. That's why it's important. Here's why it's important. Because the Bible also tells us he's made from one blood every nation of men. It tells us that this stuff is nonsense. It gives us the answer to reject nonsense like that when we see it. It tells us this, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. That is ethnos. I'm going to give you a little Greek phrase because I think you should know it. Panta ethnos. Panta ethnos. That is the phrase in the Great Commission. In fact, uh, Bodie Bauckham jokes that's the phrase he makes everybody learn if they come to his church. Because they have a very racially diverse church. We are panta ethnos. All the ethnicities. Go and make disciples of all the nations of men. If the, if the church, the different people who claim to be the church would have taken that seriously in the 1800s and 1900s and never would have dared to utter the nonsense. We can't send somebody to that tribe of people. They're not enough like us. Can't send them to that ethnicity of people because they're below us. There is no ethnicity below you and there is no ethnicity above you. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't know what tribe you're from, but I know where you are now. And I know the tribe you're from doesn't matter nearly as much as the tribe you're in. I I was asked one time if I believed in interracial marriage. I said, no, I don't believe believers should uh, marry non-believers. No, I don't. Like, no, racism. Yeah, Yeah, me too. That's what I'm saying. There's only two classifications of people in the entire scriptures, and that's saved and unsaved. But, but don't you think interracial marriage could cause problems? Yeah, that's why I'm saying unbelievers shouldn't marry believers. Hello, you're not hearing me? Yeah, by the way, that became a big deal in the SBC history too. Because there was a, a division among the Southern Baptists because there were a lot of Baptist ministers saying, look, it doesn't matter what skin color a person is, they can be a minister. And there were some men who, had, who were slaves who were also very adroit in the scriptures. And they said, yeah, we're going to let them be ministers. You can't do that. Why? Don't you know who they are? Yeah. They're Christ's. They love his word. Why not? How did Frederick Douglass spread his message? That's how. Love churches. And people got mad about that. You know who got mad about that? People that believe Darwin rather than the scriptures. That's who got mad about that. Races, when it comes to ethnicity, should be thrown in the trash can. You're made of one blood. You're one in Christ Jesus, and God's word tells us to go make disciples of all the ethnicities of men. Your skin color means nothing. Whether Christ has changed your heart means everything. Your skin color makes you not any better nor any worse than any other man. You bear the imago Dei, the image of God, just the same whether you're black, white, red, orange, yellow, or purple. I don't know. I like purple a lot. Okay, State fan. Okay, so... If you were purple, I mean, you know, I'd think about it. Now, you bear the Imago Dei just the same. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are or where you're descended from. What matters is whether Christ is in your heart. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And I just spilled all my water on the stage. Nobody saw that. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Panta ethnos. Now, I needed some humbling. I got it. Panta ethnos. All right. Let's close with that. Spill them on water. It's time to go. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Your word shows us truth. It gives us light. It shows us where our culture is wrong. 
It shows us how to react to each other. It shows us how to love each other. We are told in your word that Christians would be known by the love that we've shown one for another. God, I thank you that this gospel of yours is so beautiful and so holy and so glorious that it can bring together those who at one time hated each other because of their ethnicities. It can take the heart of a man who hates another and soften it and make him his brother. Thank you for that, Lord. I ask that we as the church, as your people, could be known by the love we have one for another. That we don't care about each other's races. We don't care about each other's um, pasts. We don't divide up uh, along those lines. But that we are one in Christ. I thank you for that, Lord. I ask you would make it so. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.